Okay, we're in the book of Philippians now. That's all you get of background. There's a lot more there. And if you want the rest of it, and you know I was frustrated trying to give you all that in, in one hour or 50 minutes. If you want the rest of it, they got the CDs from when we did it two years ago. You can get the amplified version. So that's all you get from the book of Acts. Now we're going to Philippians chapter 1. And we'll slow down a little bit because we only have to do 11 verses here. All right, let's read Philippians chapter 1. Now remember, this is Paul writing to those people like the Philippian jailer and Lydia and all those people that we saw in Acts chapter 16. This letter is going back to those people in that city. Okay, so he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, Because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let's pray. We give you thanks, Heavenly Father, for this epistle, for this letter written by men, who were your bondservants. And we ask you that we might have the same privilege tonight to be your servants, to learn to live simply to do your will, to remember that we have been bought with a price, and to do as the poet said, let those who know no second birth, labor to write their name on earth. My joy is this, that love divine on heaven's scroll has written mine. Help us to live for the love of the one who gave everything for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What did the servant girl say? The girl that had the spirit of divination. Yeah. The servants of the Most High God, and the the word it uses there, it says she cried it out. She didn't walk along muttering it. She followed along like a barking dog behind her. Wow, 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 wow. She was saying, These men are the servants. Everybody heard it. But the word she used is this word. This word in chapter 1 and verse 1. And when Paul wrote to the Philippians, this is the word he used. He said, 
Uh-huh. We're those men. We're those men. Bond servants. Servants. Whose lives are lived simply to do the pleasure of their master. You don't get very far in Western Christianity. And I should say in the Western world, you don't get very far telling people that if they trust in Jesus Christ, they're going to become his servants. Especially in North America, where people like to be free and they like to be their own boss. And they like to be the owner of the company. And they like to have their time to do whatever they please. But I'm going to tell you something right now. Salvation is free. Salvation is by grace through faith. You cannot work. You cannot do one single thing to get your sins forgiven. You can't do it. Because Jesus did it all. But if you trust in him. Now I'm not going to be like those people in the fruit markets. They put the bad berries down on the bottom of the basket where nobody can see them. Well, they don't want people to see they hide. I'm going to tell you right up front. If you trust in Jesus Christ and take him for your Lord and Savior, he's going to be the Lord of your life. And if you don't like that, you want to be your own boss. Well, there's a place where everybody who's their own boss ends up. And you don't need me to tell you what it is, do you? A Christian is a person who's under new management. But the Lord challenged people in the New Testament. I told you that verse last hour. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Because it's very important. The Christian doesn't serve Christ to be saved. He doesn't serve Christ to earn anything. Are we clear on that? I don't want to be misunderstood on this point. But having said that, I would not hide from you for one second, for one instant of time, the fact that a Christian, because he loves Christ and belongs to him, lives to please him. And you show me a person who says he believes in Jesus and lives to please himself, and I show you a person about whose life I put a big question mark. Bond servants. Paul was a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And when he took Timothy as his disciple in Acts chapter 16, what happened to Timothy? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, the young man that followed him. Timothy, the theological student. Timothy, the doctor of divinity. All right, here you preach then. He's right. That's not in here. Or like somebody said in the South, hey, That ain't in the script. And he was right. It's not in there. Paul's a bondservant. And the Lord Jesus told us every man when he is discipled, when he is perfected, will be like the one who taught him. What if everybody in the church was just like you? I ask myself that when I look in the mirror, and it's a scary thought. What if everybody in the church had the same level of commitment that you do? What if everybody in the church read their Bible as little or as much as you do? 
What if everybody in the church had the same priorities that you did? What if you came on a Sunday morning and there wasn't anybody to lead the meeting because the, the men who were supposed to lead the meeting decided they wanted to go fishing that Sunday or play golf? How come is it that a few have a commitment and a lot don't? Or think they don't. They deceive themselves into thinking they don't. You hear what I'm saying? Paul's a bond servant, and guess what Timothy is? The servant, the bond servant of Jesus Christ. So you see, if I wanted to, I could be a bad boy. We could spend the rest until 940 right here on verses 1 and 2, and we wouldn't get anywhere else. But if I do that, I'll be in trouble tomorrow. So you guys get off the hook. Because I would stay right here and lay on the arousements. <laughs> because that's what this is about. Christians are servants. Now, I'm going to give in to a little teeny bit of temptation. Come, over, come on with me. Come on. We're going to the blue room. <laughs> Romans 6. Romans 6. See, I don't want you to think that I'm just by some clever trick of oratory taking this word bondservant and playing on it and and making it into something that I want it to be because I'm not doing that. I'm going to show it to you from the Scriptures. Look over here. I don't know how to do clever tricks of oratory anyway. I just read that in a book somewhere. In in Romans chapter 6, I want you to see with me what it says. Verse 16. Now, see, I got my old King James out here. So I'm going to ask, what are you reading? What version? Okay, come on, Dean. You, you read, a nice loud voice. Verses 16 uh, down to 23 to the end. Verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that through, through you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Being saved, having your sins forgiven, being born again, having eternal life, is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Being a true born-again Christian is a lot more than getting a little get-out-of-hell-free card from God to keep in your wallet till the day you die. If you think that's what Christianity is about, you're missing the whole message of Christianity. 
God does forgive people's sins. And he does make them eternally secure with that salvation forever. But he doesn't just do that. God is in the business of changing people's lives. He's in the business of transforming us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Become a new person. And Paul says, a servant. And Timothy says, a servant, a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And they're not ashamed of it. We live to serve him. Or we should. And that message should not be hidden from people when we preach the gospel. When we witness, when we proclaim the gospel. We shouldn't be in a big hurry to get people to cry a little bit and raise their hand or pray some little prayer or come to the front and say they trusted Jesus. We ought to make sure they understand what we're talking about. Jesus Christ died to save me. When He died on the cross at Calvary, He took my sins. He bore my sins. I did the sinning and He got the whipping for it. He got punished for my sins. And when I trust in Him as my substitute, the one who suffered for me at the cross of Calvary, the one that God raised from the dead, that same Jesus that died for me and rose again, He gives me His righteousness. He takes away all my sin and He puts His righteousness in me. Not my own righteousness. Because I don't have any of that. And He makes me a new person. And He starts me out on a new path in life. And he's working on me. And I can say, be patient with me. Because God hasn't finished with me yet. And if Paul has to say in chapter 3 of Philippians that I have not attained yet, he says, not as though, verse 12 of chapter 3, not as though I had already attained or were already perfect. Boy, if Paul has to say that, I tell you, I'd be satisfied to be more like Paul. So I'm a long way off the mark. But God's working on me. And I can say this. By the grace of God, I'm not what I was. I'm not what I was. And nobody knows that better than me and my wife. (laughs) Because I was married when I got saved. And she got saved later on. So nobody knows that on earth better than us two. Life isn't what it used to be. I got saved when I was 24. I went all through university and was in the Air Force and pilot training before I really turned my life over to Christ. So I know, I'm ashamed to say, what it means to live in the world. I know all about that. And I'm not what I used to be. By the grace of God. It's a privilege, not only to know you're going to heaven, but to be able to live to serve God and you say... Oh, now, wait a minute. Let me see if I understand you. You saying we all got to be missionaries and go to Spain like you? I didn't say that. Just get it out of your mind right now that the only way you can serve God is to go be a missionary, get a passport and learn a language and go to a foreign country. You're supposed to be serving God right where you are. God's got work for us to do. Or, or if that isn't true, then you tell me why they got all these people in Philippi. Why didn't they all pack their suitcases and run off with Paul to the next city? Because it was God's will for them to stay where they were 
in their jobs, in their home, in their city, and to live a Christ-like life. And to show the people in the city of Philippi that that crazy man, Saul of Tarsus, and his little group that came with him weren't the only people whose lives or minds Jesus Christ had touched. And that's what he's going to be teaching them here. He's going to talk to them in this epistle about the fellowship in the gospel. You know, like those crew teams. And they're all rowing together. They got that stroke down. Those paddles have got to all go in the water at the same time and come up and feather at the same time and go forward and come down. They're pulling together in the faith of the gospel. There's not one man sitting there going for a ride, said that little teeny fella at the back with the megaphone. The rest of them are all pulling their weight. The church, the evangelical church in the West, and the West includes Spain, has a lot of coasters and riders in it. They don't think they got anything to do. They think go to church is a gift they have or, or that's them doing their part. Somebody's got to preach, so somebody's got to listen. So my job is to go listen or to be there. Uh-uh. That's not it. Paul was a bondservant, and Timothy is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a bondservant. You belong to him because he paid for you, brother, with blood. Amen. He paid for you with blood. Now, you tell me who else did that for you. He died for you on the cross at Calvary. You tell me who else did that for you, suffered that for you. He bought you. For you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Paul, when he speaks of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what does he say to them there? You are not your own. To all the Corinthians. He wasn't saying that to the Corinthian pastors and missionaries seminar at the Radisson Hotel in Corinth. He's writing a letter to all of the believers. Young believers, old believers, fat believers, skinny believers, bald believers, believers with a head full of hair, believers who've been saved 10 minutes and believers who've been saved 10 years, doctors and lawyers and slaves and, and burden carriers from the Isthmus of Corinth from one side to the other. All those people. He's talking to all of them. You are bought with a price. And brother, you're not a brother if you haven't been bought with a price. Because the ones who are really in the family of God, they got blood on them. They got a blood price that's been paid for them. And I am always reminded of that. I don't belong to myself. For 24 years of my life, I belong to myself. And I made a stinking rotten mess of my life. And I'm ashamed of it. I wouldn't go back to that for anything. I wouldn't try to drag that old stinking dead corpse of a life in the, and live the same way I lived back then for anything. I'm glad that for it to be gone forever. To be able to serve the Lord. And I didn't start serving the Lord when I went to Spain. Whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all your might. When I got saved and I came into fellowship in the church there, I said, what can I do? 
And the, and the older brother said, give out the hymn books and collect them after the meeting. That's what I did. And I emptied trash cans. And I made sure the tracks were on the racks. And I, Anything they had to do, I was willing to do it. Range the chairs. I didn't care. And you know what? I wasn't looking for anything else to do. I wasn't saying, I'm, I'm going to do this because my five-year plan is I'm going to be a missionary. I didn't have any five-year plan. I just wanted to serve the Lord. If they'd have sent me to the kitchen and said, chop up onions for the rest of your life, I'd say, chop up onions for Jesus' sake. I'll do it. Just let me do something to, to help out. Anything. You long for the ride? You know God's made you a member of the body? And in a body... Even fingernails and armpits have a function. <laughs> Every part of the body has a function. Every part of the body contributes something. Now, don't start getting offended thinking I'm calling somebody an armpit because I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to use an exact, instead of saying the heart and the liver, I'm just trying to make you think about it. There's, there's nothing in the body that shouldn't be there. Every part of it, God gives a function. And when he speaks to the church in Corinth and he's talking to them, he's talking to that assembly. Now, we know that the universal church, all believers, they rest the body of Christ. That's not what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. He says to the Corinthian believers, he doesn't say you're part of the body of Christ. He says you are the body of Christ because that's what they were in Corinth. He's talking to that assembly. And he's trying to tell them that in that assembly, in that local church, everybody had a function. Everybody belongs to the Lord. Everybody belongs to the body. The Lord is the head of the body and we're all the body. And we all have a function. And nobody can say to anybody else, I don't have any need of you. And nobody can say, oh, because I'm not an eye or a hand, I'm not going to do anything. Bond servant to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. With the bishops and deacons. And there's the three things that compose the church there. First, everybody in the church there is, he doesn't say Christian. You see that? What he uses? What they use in Acts 16 when we finish the chapter? What was the word? They, when they had seen the brethren. And what they use here? Saints. A saint is somebody who's set apart. Set apart is what that word means. Set apart for special use. When I went to see the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, uh, where they're preparing for the next temple, which will be the third temple, there was Solomon's Temple, and then there was the Reconstruction Temple, which later Herod modified the Temple Mount and some of the, the outer buildings, so they call it Herod's Temple. That's really the, still the second temple, the Reconstruction Temple, that had been uh, modified a little by Herod. So this is going to be the third temple. And the lady uh, who was showing us all the things they'd been doing, they're making the priest's garments out of linen. They got the priestly garments already made. And they got the golden candlestick, which is about this high. The menorah is about this high. It's a huge thing like this. And they got it all made, and it's covered with gold. They're getting ready to go. And they had these... um, these these golden um, bowls, or I don't know what you would call them, they're, they're for when they had the animal sacrifices to catch the blood of the animal. 
Basin. Thank you. Dean's helping me because he knows my English is. And I appreciate it. They appointed so you can't sit them down. So the blood can't coagulate. It, it has to be moved all the time until they pour it out. See, And they let us handle it. She said, Go, here, take it. It's okay for you to handle it even though uh, you're not Jews and you're not part of the priesthood. She said, you can handle it because these haven't been sanctified yet. These haven't been consecrated yet. That's what she said. When she said that, I went. Because after it's been consecrated, it's not for common touching and using anymore. You got that? A saint is somebody who's been consecrated. And if you would just think about that, we wouldn't have to go on and on and explain about how Christians need to be careful not to be worldly and to be separated from the sinful things and from the carnal things and from the empty things that are in this world. And I wouldn't have to go on and say, I wish you could learn. If you just caught on to what it means to be a saint. Because see, that's what the Bible does. It doesn't wait for people to die. And 200 years later, the Pope runs around and the cardinals and the bishops over there, ding, 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 with the little bells and the water and the incense. And they make a little ceremony and then they declare somebody a saint. God says to the believers in Philippi, to those ordinary people, just like you and me, he says, you're saints. God says, you believed in Jesus Christ? He's your Lord and Savior? You are a saint. Now, act like one. He doesn't say, if you act like a saint, then I'll make you one later on. He says, you are a saint. You are set apart for God's use. Now, act like it. Act like it. The world has all the people it needs and more today than ever before with over 6 billion people in the world. Don't you think the world has enough people to run all of its affairs and society and entertain it and everything? Don't you think the world has everything it needs without using up our lives? We belong to the Lord. I don't know if we're going to get out of the salutation. I've got to get in high gear here. The bishops and the deacons, they're all saints, see, and they got in the church there, they got bishops. That word is the word that comes from overseer. That's people, and we can't go into all that right now, so just excuse me. They're the people who see over, they're looking over, they're watching, they're observing. And you know what? A lot of people in Western churches don't like people to get their nose in their life. They don't like the elders to come visit them. They don't like anybody to ask them any personal questions. And they much less like for anybody to get into their lives and give them some advice about what they ought to do or ought not to do. We're real independent people over here. But God in the church gives not a bishop. See, bishops, overseers. And there's three words real quick I'll give them to you. One of them is pastor. Hmm? What is he? A shepherd. He's guiding. He's caring for them. He's feeding them. So you have a pastor. You have an elder. And what's an elder? He's an older person. Uh, Comparatively speaking, he's been down the road. He has wisdom, the wisdom of experience and age. And he's able to counsel and guide. And then you have Bishops, overseers who watch over. I saw a man one time. 
stand at the door of a place and he saw somebody was getting ready to come in uh, to a congregation and he turned that person around at the door. Now, some of you might be upset about that. But you know what? He did the right thing because it turned out he knew who that man was in town. That man was a wolf. He was coming in to find out who all the people were that went to church there so he could later go visit them in their homes and invite them to go help him start a new church somewhere. He was a sheep stealer. And he knew what he was, and he turned him around the door and said, Not in here. It's a thankless job on earth sometimes. Let's see. Those are not three different job titles. That's one job. The scripture, and we don't have time to go into it right now, but I could show you how the scripture uses those terms interchangeably. Pastors or shepherds, that's the same word, and bishops and elders are three terms that describe the same men. And it's always plural. In every local church, in every congregation, they didn't have a hired pastor. That's not in the Scripture. They had men, a plurality of men, who were at the same time called shepherds or pastors, elders, or bishops. Because all of those words describe the different facets of what that same group of men do. And that's what was there. And deacons. The deacons are the servants. They serve. The word is a word we translate minister. But it means to minister to or to take care of. That's the idea. They're the right-hand men, you might say, of the overseers, the bishops, the shepherds, the pastors. These are the men who, who are the burden bearers and the helpers and the right-hand men who help the, help the practical things get done in the life of a congregation. And it doesn't say in the scripture that they always have to do a certain thing like um, write the checks to pay for the bills or do it online now. It doesn't say that. They're servants. They do whatever the elders need for them to do. And that could include a lot of things. It could include taking people taking people home, going to visit people, ta- uh, distributing things to people who are in need like it was in Acts 6, a lot of things. But anyway, here they are. And they're all in the Philippian church And he sends them not money from the United States. He sends them grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of churches in different places in the world would sure like for the people in North America to send them some money. Because they see the North Americans have a lot more than everybody else. And that's really what they hope for. Not everybody. But there are people who look and say, what are we going to get from the United States? A package arrived or a letter arrived or I wonder what it is. I wonder if it's good news. Paul couldn't send them that. He didn't have any. He sent them what he did have, grace and peace. And that's not just a polite thing to say, like saying, have a nice day. It's not that. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Because we belong to Jesus Christ, we get undeserved help and favor from God. That's what grace is, undeserved favor. And God helps us to live. He helps all Christians to live the Christian life. But you can't live it if you don't belong to God. You can try and you will fail. And more than one person, more than two have done that and turned their back on Christianity and said it didn't work. 
It didn't work for them. You know why? Because they didn't get saved. They didn't have God in their life. And so they didn't have any grace. They were running on battery power. And it ran out. God has a limitless supply of grace and peace. Paul desires for them to have. Because he knows what things were like in Philippi when he left. That beating that he got. That riot. That mob. And he wants them to have that peace. And you see where it came from? God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one source. One source. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are one and the same. The Lord Jesus said that in John 10 verse 30. I and the Father are one. And when he says things like that in the epistles, it's just one more proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ. That what God gives us, Jesus Christ gives us because Jesus Christ is God. And so that's the salutation. That's how he begins. And then you see you don't get any grace here from the sacraments. You don't take the Lord's Supper to get grace. You don't get any grace for things like that. You get God's grace because of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you do. So he begins and he says in verses 3 to 8, he expresses his genuine affection for them. And I want you to notice the things that he says to him here. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Boy, I think about that right away when he started off with a boy, Philippi. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say Philippi? If I had said that to you after I read about half of chapter 16, what would you have said? A beaten. A demon-possessed girl. A mob. A prejudiced judge. The Philippian jailer. The, the stocks. The dungeon. When I think of Philippi, Paul says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Because he chose not to think about the stick he got beat with. Some people obsess on their mistreatment. And they get a big attitude about all that kind of stuff. People from all over the world have this same problem. Because it's just part of our nature. See, a lot of it is a choice of, is a question of your choice of focus. What you're going to think about. He could have thought about the stick. He could have thought about the mob. He could have thought about that unjust judge. He said, I think about you. And I think about Philippi. I think about the people that got saved. And I thank God for them. So, in short time here, I want you to see with me down through verse 8. Eight marks of a good servant of Jesus Christ. This is character. This is character. The things that Paul has to say to them, how he thinks about them, and how he begins reminiscing about them here, are things that give us insights into Paul's character. And brother, this is what the Christian life is all about. It's about character. It's not about getting your little get-out-of-hell-free card stamped and carrying it in your wallet. See, God does forgive our sins, and he does give us eternal life, and then... He begins at that very moment to do an ongoing work of transformation in our lives. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be honest with you. There are some Christians who are frozen Christians.
They're not growing. They took that first step. And they took that second step. Maybe they got baptized. And they said, okay, now I ain't going to sleep in and go have brunch on Sunday morning anymore. I'm going to go to the meeting. What a good boy am I. And they got a big bruise patting themselves on the back. And they drove down the street going to the chapel and and they looked over there and saw all those people in there, Father Nature's in there on Sunday morning having that big big brunch and reading that newspaper and and reading that sports page and them comics. And they're riding down the street and they said, "Uh uh-huh, I'm going to meet I'm making a big sacrifice. And that's all they ever did. And 20 years later, they hadn't gotten any further than they did in that first two weeks. The frozen Christian. And there they are. And there they are. The Christian life is about character. The Christian life is about growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God took away your sins and gave you a a place where you could fellowship with other believers, that wasn't the end of his work. You hear what I'm saying now? That was the beginning of it. That was the beginning of it. He has something he wants to do with you and your life. But if you're so full of your own plans for your career and your life that you can't let God do anything, you're you're not sensitized to the idea that He wants to keep touching you and molding you and changing you, you just go on and be happy in your frozen condition. Like that mammoth they found up in Siberia that had the vegetables frozen still in his mouth. A Bible conference speaker told me one time, about a man he visited in another part of the United States. He was passing through and he had to spend the night. And he called him up and the man said, come stay at my house. A wealthy, well-to-do man who was a believer there. And he said that he went and stayed in his home. And before they went to bed that night, the man said, well, let's just have a little reading. The owner of the house said, let's just have a little reading from the Word. And he opened up the Word. And this man that was visiting there, he was impressed. And he opened up the Word. He said, let's just have a little And he read a couple of verses of Scripture and he made a little comment about it and they had a word of prayer and then they went off to bed. Well, a lot of people do things like that when the preacher comes to visit. We're going to get to that tomorrow. Paul says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. You just hang on. We're going to get there. 20 years later, This is not an exaggeration. The same man went back to that same city passing through and went to visit that same man who had him stay at his home. And you know what he did? He got out his Bible and and he read the same little verses and said exactly the same thing he said 20 years ago. And this older man was talking to me about it and he said, it was good what he said. He said, it's not that. It's not that that bothered me. He said, what bothered me was, as I spent time with him and observed him, I I discovered that in 20 years, he hadn't grown. His knowledge of the scriptures, everything about his life, spiritually speaking, was frozen. He hadn't grown in 20 years. Now, in other ways, maybe he lost weight, maybe he gained weight. 
Maybe he couldn't run as much. Maybe he could run further. His financial situation was certainly different than what it was 20 years ago. He'd been working on everything. And a lot of people have a lot of goals, career goals, financial goals, and all kinds of goals where they're happy just to be that frozen Christian who goes to meetings and that's all he does. So I'm saying all that as an introduction to these eight points so you'll get the point here. God wants us to grow. Grab something and say, thaw me out, Lord. I don't want to stay frozen. I don't want to be a stagnant, smelly Christian with a big thing of green foam floating around on the top. I want to be a growing Christian with living water flowing out of my innermost parts. First thing, the first mark of Christian character that we see in Paul here is right here in verse 3 where we started reading. It's called a grateful spirit. A Christian who's a good servant of the Lord and in whose life the Lord is working and is developing his character is not a complainer, a chronic complainer. Now, that doesn't mean, let's not be ridiculous here, okay? That doesn't mean if a book falls off the table and hits you on the foot, you have to say, oh, praise the Lord. It hurts. You say, ow. And you hop around. But you don't say a lot of other things that you used to say. And you get to the point in your life where you don't even think them. You can get there. See, But we're not talking about Things like that. We're talking about people who have a chronic problem with the griping and complaining and always focusing on the negative. Saw uh, with Mr. McDonald one time. We were, uh, I went to visit him in the morning, and uh, we were going out to go walking. He likes to go walking. We were going out. As we walked out of his building, a man was coming up the stairs, one of the other tenants in the building, and Mr. McDonald said, Good morning. Beautiful day today. And the man just said, Huh, it'll probably rain in the afternoon. And went down the hall. And we walked down the stairs going, <clears throat> trying not to laugh out loud. It was so ridiculous. It was a beautiful day, but some people just can't see it. It's a question of your focus. I thank my God. First words out of his mouth about how he felt about them. I thank my God when I think about you. What did you do? When another brother comes into your thoughts, when the saints in the, in the church here come into your mind, what's the first thing you do? You thank God? Is the first thing that comes into your mind, huh, at that time he didn't speak to me. Or something else. Do you focus on the negative? You're like these little old ladies got their African violet. Some of my aunts had those. Y'all got any African violets around here? You know what I'm talking about? They got them little old plants in the the windowsill on the coffee table there where the sunlight gets on it in the morning. That plant has been there. That plant's 30 years old, that little ridiculous African violet. Now, I like plants, okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm a gardener. I like it. I don't have any, any garden in Spain, but I get some potted plants and I get my fingers dirty. But what I'm talking about is this. Some people are like those little old ladies who keep them African violets. They nurse a grudge. They remember something somebody did or something they don't like about the church or about the people or about somebody. 
And they nurse that plant and they keep it alive. And they carry it on for year after year after year. And they just that and they are. And you see it on their face. They're just a sourpuss. They ought to be selling lemons. And I'm not talking about cars. Just calm down, Ron. <laughs> I know I'm gonna get it later. <laughs> but he knows I love him. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And you know what? God is my witness. When I think about this church, and this is a personal note, when I think about this church, wherever I am, which is most of the time in Spain, I thank the Lord for all of you. I really do. I just want you to know what an encouragement this church is to me. And I didn't do this church. This church is just a pure blessing to me. I'm not the people who labored and worked here. I just come and get the blessing. But I thank the Lord. And and I think about so many places I visit around the world. I saw those people walking down that mountain trail in Honduras. And I said, Lord, those poor people who can just barely read and write, they just preached a sermon to me by walking down a mountain trail barefooted three, three hours to get to a meeting. They preached us. They ministered to my life and to my character. I can't go to meeting. I got the sniffles. I can't go to meeting. I'm tired. What do you mean you're tired? Get off it. You're too tired to drive your car with an automatic transmission and park in the parking lot. You're too tired. Call Randy. He'll come pick you up. Call Ray. Call anybody. We'll bring you in here on a stretcher if we need to, but that's not the problem. The problem is not with I can't. Let's get off it. The problem is with I don't want to. But he's thankful. And I thank the Lord for these people. People that don't even know they ministered to me. Something about their life. Something about their character. Something about their love for the Lord. It spoke to my heart. And I choose to think about that. And not to find out, remember, try hard to remember the things I don't like or the things I don't understand and water that little African violet and put it in the sun and keep it alive. I like to get that stuff out of my memory and out of my mind and just forget it and move on with life. A grateful spirit. Second, a good memory. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He remembered them. He remembered them. He thought about them. To remember, it comes from a verb that means to bring to mind. It doesn't mean just, and sometimes uh, remembering is casual. Uh, uh, You didn't really plan it, it just pops into your mind. But the idea when the Lord says, this do in remembrance to me, in remembrance of me, if you translated that literally out of the Greek and into the English, it would say, this do in bringing me to mind. That's what it means. It's an exercise, the Lord's Supper, this doing remembrance of me and bringing me to mind, where our job is to bring the Lord to our mind. And so anything anybody has to say at the Lord's Supper, it's not a time to give testimony about answer prayer during the week and how wonderful uh, something, some deal worked out for you and this and that. It's not a time to talk about us. And I'm not criticizing anybody for anything. I'm not, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just saying these are things I've had to learn and all of us should learn. 
is to think about him. Bring him into your mind. Think about him. In heaven, when they worship the Lord, they think about him. They talk about him. And they talk to him about him. They don't get up and preach to each other about him. They talk right to Everything they had to say, they would have said to each other. They say it to the Lord in worship. That's the purest form of worship. Now, I'm not saying that's the only form. But I'm saying in that we need to grow. To, and, and Paul here, he's bringing them to mind. He's, he's not going to forget them. And I'm not going to forget you. Now, I'm not planning on going anywhere. Don't worry. But I'm just saying, you remember the people you love. Upon every, every time I bring you to mind, I thank God. So a good memory. I knew a man who had a, such a memory he could go to a Bible conference where there might be three, four hundred people there. And before that conference was over, which lasted a week, he learned everybody's name at that conference. His name was Welcome Detweiler. He was, an, he was a gifted man. Came from a Quaker background. That's how he got the name Welcome. And uh, this is the way he was. He said, pots and pans have handles. Luggage has handles. People have names. And he worked at it. He, didn't, he wasn't a given. Him. He wrote it down. And he'd write to take notes on people and, and review it and try to remember it. Every remembrance of you. A good memory. Mental discipline. Thinking of others. And you have time to meditate and to pray because a good way to remember people is to pray. Start praying. And he comes to that, doesn't he? That's the next point, the third point, a life of prayer. A grateful spirit, a good memory, and a life of prayer. Always in every prayer of mine for you, verse 4. His thoughts lead him to prayer. And that's what our thoughts ought to do. And, And we need to train ourselves this way we need to work on this aspect of our life and in our character that our thoughts lead us to pray about things just in a natural way just whatever comes to your mind instead of worrying and fretting about it or wondering about it pray about it convert it into prayer every prayer of mine for you all he and he made sure that they understood here that he prayed for them more than once. And when he prayed for them, we're going to see it later on because he's going to talk about it. Down in verse 9, he's going to say, and this I pray. He's going to tell them what he prayed. You ever wonder about that? Some brother or sister comes up to you and says, I've been praying for you, brother. Uh-huh. What's he been saying? I'd like to be a fly on the wall in those prayers. Paul says, I'm going to tell you what I'm praying. And he prayed for them. And we need to pray for each other. Look at all the people here in this room. If you just spent time remembering with a thankful spirit and praying for all the brothers and sisters in this church, just think about how many bad things you wouldn't have time to think about. And not just bad, how many useless things. Things that might not be bad, but they're just a waste of time. Just think. And he says, in fourth place, a joyful spirit. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. With joy. A joyful spirit. Even in prison. They prayed and sang hymns. And the Philippians know it. And Paul, he's not blowing smoke here. 
They heard that man. They know what that man did when he had been beaten and was in prison in Philippi. So when he talks about being able to make requests for them with joy and to pray, they know that his life backs up what he's saying. He's not giving out theories. He's talking about how he lived and they know it. There's a lot of people going around evangelicalism, blowing smoke, talking theories. Their preaching is the performance of an hour. It's a stage performance. And their life is not anything like what they're talking about and living like. Listen, prayer is a big part of the Christian life and prayer with joy. And we don't just talk about it. We're supposed to do it. A joyful spirit appreciating what God has done for you and appreciating what God has done in others' lives. Not being jealous or envious because God has blessed somebody else, but being able to be happy for the blessings that God gives to other brothers and sisters. And by the way, since he says it this way, making requests with joy, and you see this as you go through the epistle, how much he talks about joy. Joy is not something that falls out of uh, the sky onto you. You know, like when a flock of birds flies over. It's not a haphazard, unexplained thing. Splat. It's not like a raindrop. Maybe that's a better illustration for a men's seminar. (laughs) You don't know if it's going to hit you or not. Sometimes I just say the first thing that comes to mind. It's... Something that you decide. Joy is a decision. See? You need to learn this. That your your emotions are not a horse that doesn't have any reins. They're not a monster with no reins, no controls to it. There are reins. And you need to find them and control them. And not, this is what the mind and the emotions like to do. They like to run like a, a riderless horse or a horse with no bit and bridle and reins, they just like to gallop and go anywhere they feel like. And a lot of people just let themselves be a passenger on that. They just let it go. They, that's the way they go through life. A victim of their emotions and their mind that's jumping around. They don't learn to control it. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. That's an exhortation. That's something you're supposed to do. It's not something that's, that comes to you. You don't know why. I mean, there might be times when you get extra joy. But joy is supposed to be a choice. And so he, he makes requests with joy. A joyful spirit. And we need to ask the Lord to help us to grow in the control of our emotions. Don't say, I can't help it. Verse 5 and number 5. A spirit of fellowship and ministry. Fellowship. Or teamwork, you could say. He's able to work with others. A good servant of the Lord is able to do that. He doesn't think he's the only one. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And he makes them see that they're not just, quote, his converts. They're his co-workers. Your fellowship in the gospel. He's not a performer, and their job is to be the audience and applaud at the appropriate time. They're working with him, and he's going to come back to that later on. Fellowship is a lot more than eating meals together. It can certainly include those things, but it's working together and worshiping together. And this is what they did in Philippi. In verse 6, he says, being confident of this very thing. 
confidence. Number six, confidence in God. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's optimistic, not pessimistic. He's optimistic about what God is doing in other people's lives. I'm sure of it. It's not me. You weren't just doing that for me. God worked in you. And God began to work in you. He didn't say the work I began. I've heard people say that too. Point to a great big church and they said, I gave birth to that. Holding on to their suspenders. I Listen, every true church, God gave birth to it. They didn't say that. He says... He who has begun a good work in you because God begins it and he finishes. The Lord Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he who begins a good work in people will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. He'll continue it. He'll finish it. God doesn't do things halfway. And we should be confident about that in the Lord's work, in the preaching of the gospel, in, the, in our spiritual lives, that God is not in the, in the business of leaving people half-baked. When God is in a person's life, he sees it through to the end. Confidence. God keeps his promises. Paul couldn't be there, but God could. They could ask Paul to leave, but they couldn't get rid of God. And you see in seventh place, verse 7, genuine affection. He says, even as it is meet or fitting for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Both in my bonds and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. He says, we're all in this together, and you're in my heart. It's right for me to say these things about you, to think these things about you. This is how I think about you, he says. And it's right for me to do that, because I have you in my heart. Now, he's being affectionate with them. They're not his project. People are not our projects. Believers are not our projects. Believers are our family. They're our brothers and our sisters. That's how we think about them, with that genuine affection, not cold professionalism. This is not a job or a career. It's a family. And finally, because of that genuine affection, you have this when he says in verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all. In the bowels of Jesus Christ, it says. Because that's the place where the affections were, in the deep inner affections of Jesus Christ. You say, why can they they say the bowels? You know, in, in Iran... When somebody, in Farsi, when somebody is precious to like a little child, they call them, if you translate literally what they say, they're jiggling the little baby and smiling at him. They say, oh, golden liver. Golden liver? When I heard what the translation, I said, golden liver. And they said, well, you say sweetheart. (laughs) And there they said, the bowels, that was like saying the most, the deep, the most inner part of me. That's how I long for you. Say it. Tell the brothers and sisters that you love them. You know, that's one of the things I love about this church, that you do that. Don't be too much of a tough guy to express your emotions. I had a brother that died in a car wreck when he was 20 years old. 
And one of the things, the many things that distressed me is I stood by his casket. And I was a new believer. I'd been saved six months. One of the things that distressed me was I couldn't remember when I ever told my brother that I loved him. Because we didn't do that. The guys, you know, we didn't do that. We fought. We hunted together. We played ball together. We argued and everything else, you know, but we never said, I love you. I mean, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old guys, we didn't do that. That was girl stuff. And I was really sorry standing there by that casket that I hadn't told him that. And I made a promise that I wasn't going to make that mistake again. I wasn't going to try to be a tough guy. And we need to let people know how we feel about them. It's not a girl thing. It's a God thing. See. So don't wait too late. And maybe you know somebody that you need to break down the barrier and break the silence and you need to make a move and tell them and don't wait any longer. Now we got to finish. And I just want to, I'm going to give you real quick verses 9 to 11 here. We're not going to go into it. I'm going to tell you what his prayers were and you're going to have to, to work it out yourself. Here we go. Five things that Paul's praying for, for them. He didn't just say, bless the Philippians. And when you pray for brothers and sisters, you need to have specific requests for them. If you can't think of any, use these. Or use the ones in Colossians. Or use the ones in Philippians. There are a lot of places where in the scripture it tells us how the apostle And you can pray, and you should pray. We should pray that way for each other. So this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. He prayed for them to have more love. Still more love than they had. That their love would not grow cold. Because in Revelation chapter 2, the first thing that God has to say about the seven churches, the church in Ephesus, the first thing He says is, I have something against you because you have left your first love. God's real sensitive about that. He's more sensitive than we are about it. That your love may abound yet more and more. Love to the Lord, first of all. And then brotherly love. Don't let circumstances cool you down and separate you and, make, and let you drift off away from your brothers and sisters. Keep the fires of love burning and turn them up. Don't let it go down. And the world gives us a thousand things to take up our minds, to take up our time, to wear us down, to contaminate us, and to, and to put this out if they can, if it can. I pray for your love that it will abound more and more. But listen, love is not blind. It says, in all knowledge and discernment. This is not a gushy, blind, feely-feely, giggly-giggly love. This is a love that's got its eyes open. In all knowledge and discernment. Discernment. Not just unconditional love, everything, love all the time. Without looking at what you're doing. Love is not blind. In all knowledge and discernment. Why? Second prayer request. He prays for them to have prudence in the things that they approve of. I want you to, your love to grow in knowledge and discernment so that you'll approve the things that are excellent. So you're not just going to say everything's okay. 
I want you to have the kind of love that's able to say, that's able to discern between good, better, and best. I'm not even talking about bad and worst. But sometimes the good becomes the enemy of the best. It says that you may be able to prove the things that are excellent. And that's the only thing God really asks for us to approve, things that are excellent. And we say everything's okay. And God says, I want you to approve the things that are excellent. And how are you going to know what's excellent? Because you're going to look in this book. As a Christian man, you're going to be a man of this book. You don't need to know everything that goes on on ESPN or Fox or any of those others. But you need to know everything that's in this book. And I'm not going to back down from that. Because I know it's for your good. You need to know what's in this book. That's right. All scripture is given by God. By inspiration of God and profitable. And we need to know it. So he says, I want your love to grow in knowledge and discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. The best things. And also he says that you may, this is the third request, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere comes from an old word, sincera, we say. In Spanish, it means without wax. Because they used to make this pottery, uh, ceramic, and and sometimes when it had a defect in it, uh, they would cover it up, they would fill the crack with wax, and then maybe put uh, something uh, on the outside of the wax and paint it a little bit, and so you couldn't see the defect. But people who were wise would go to the market to buy the pottery. What did they do, Adel? Tell them. Ah, they pick up the pot. It looks real nice. They pick it up and they do this. They hold it up to the sunlight and they look inside it, don't they? They look inside it. And now what? If it's got theta, if it's got wax in it, the sunlight comes in. They say, "Uh uh-huh, there's a crack. Oh, look at that. What's that? It's a chip there. Uh, How much were you asking for this? You can take that price down by half. Because that's what this means. Don't be a fake Christian. Don't have any wax in there. Don't just try to make it look good on the outside. You see, and none of us are perfect. And I'm the first one. I'm at the top of the list. But I'll tell you what. God is in the business of filling in the cracks in my life. He gets rid of those things. He's working on us. He's changing us. He's not asking us to just cover it up and make a good show, make it look good from a distance. But if they pick it up and they hold it up to the S-O-N, sun, to the light, and they say, "Uh uh-uh. He's tricking us. See, he says, I don't want you to be there. I don't want you to have wax. I don't want you to be faking it. I don't want you to just be impressing people. I want it to be real. Sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That means until the day when the Lord Jesus comes and takes us to heaven to be with him. That day. That's how long. Christianity is not something you try for a week. It's a new birth and a permanent change in life. From now until the Lord comes. I don't like those little signs that evangelicals wore on their, on their lapels that said, Try Jesus. Get out of here with that. What are you talking about? Try Jesus. What's this like? Going to Baskin Robbins? You get one of them little spoons? Oh, I don't like pistachio gorilla vanilla. I will... What are 
you mean try Jesus? This is something, go up to Napa and try, I don't even know the names of the California wines, so I can't say them. And you got to wash your mouth out with water and you got to swizzle it around and do all the things you learned everybody else did. And you try and you say, I don't know why they do this, but I'm doing it anyway because that's what everybody does. We don't try Jesus. We surrender to him. And he takes up his residence in us. So he says, till the day of Christ. And he says, next, we have abounding love with discernment. We have prudence in the things you approve of. That you'll approve of the things that are excellent. You don't say, who are we to judge? God says, judge and approve the things that are excellent. You have a sincere life without offense. And then you have the fruits of righteousness. I'm sorry I told you five and there's four. I don't know how to count yet. Okay. I think I said five though. I do that sometimes. Math was my weak point. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Not having an occasional fruit but being filled with fruit. Filled with the fruits of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit, for example. And this you'll have to do on your own. I, I hope you'll do it. You get a concordance or Bible software and you look up the word fruit and you see all the times it appears in the New Testament. You see all the different kinds of fruit. There's fruit of character. There's fruit of lips. There's fruit of works. Now, I'm not going to give it all to you. You go look it up and find it. But he says here, let your basket be full. Don't live like these people, you know, who's got a old yellow uh, newspaper clipping that when they were 16, they run the 100 yards and, and beat everybody in the Podunk High School. And they got in the newspaper, in the Podunk uh, Journal, Daily Journal, this the newspaper we used to have back in North Carolina called the Gold Leaf Farmer, where it told about uh, Sam Jones, his pig had had six babies last night, and so on and so forth. And in there also it tells who won the horseshoes and who won the whatever. And they cut this out. They got this wrinkly old yellow newspaper clipping. Some people live like that, you know. That's all they got is memories of the past. God says, let your basket be full of fruit for the Lord. The past isn't good enough. And Paul's going to say it later on in chapter 3. He says, forgetting the things that are behind, I press on. It's not what I did yesterday. I don't need to be thinking about that. I need to be thinking about what I'm supposed to be doing today, right now. If I'm looking back at the last bump I ran into, I'm going to hit the next post in front of me right in the head. So I don't look back. For good or bad, I look forward. Filled with fruits of righteousness. Which are by Jesus Christ, because you can't produce those fruits by yourself. It's only by the Lord Jesus. By Jesus Christ. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. That's how we bring glory to God. Not by impressing people. Simply by bearing fruit for the Lord. Fruit of character. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. The fruit of lips, giving thanks to His name. The sacrifice of praise. Souls one for the Lord Jesus. These things are fruit. Is your basket full? In Deuteronomy 16, and with this I close, 
Deuteronomy 16, the Lord said, Three times a year, all the men in Israel had to appear before him for the Feast of Jehovah. He said this, No man among you must appear before me empty-handed. Everybody had to bring fruit, had to bring something for the Lord. See, And that's the way he wants us in his presence. Not empty-handed. He wants us to bring fruit. Let you let your life be a basket full of fruit for the Lord. And anything that's hindering that, you start dealing with it right now. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time together. Help us to be men of Christian character. Help us to be men whose lives are lived like bond servants. To be useful to you, Lord. Let our Christian life be much more than just waiting to get to heaven. Let it be a time of productive service here. Work on us. Transform us, Lord. Work on our character, on our speech, on our behavior, on our priorities. Anything and everything in our lives, touch it and change us that we might, be, we might live for your honor and glory. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.